You want big league performance in your backyard? Well, turn to steel battery tools like I have for a number of years. S-T-I-H-L, that's steel. You can find them at steeldealers.com. There's more than 10,000 dealers around the country. And you can find them as well at steelusa.com. They have so many different tools, man. Cool stuff. Mowers, blowers, chainsaws, trimmers, all different price ranges. And depending on the kind of jobs that you have to get done, from small jobs to the biggest jobs out there for the pros, they all go to steel. That's S-T-I-H-L. Again, steeldealers.com, steelusa.com. They're fantastic. Real steel. Again, find yours at steel, S-T-I-H-L, steeldealers.com. Love telling you about my friends at Boyer's Coffee because I love coffee. And I love Boyer's Coffee. They've been brewed in the Rocky Mountains since 1965. It's how I start my day. And as I've just told you many times, when I'm at the ballpark, that's what I get at the ballpark. Downstairs in the dining room. And then Deb's kind enough to uh, always bring by my mocha, which uh, gets me through the first usually about five innings. When it is cold out, I'll be honest, sometimes I double up like in April and sometimes in those September games. But their their coffee's consistent. Their coffee is great. They have a number of wonderful flavors. And if you go to boyerscoffee.com, they always have different promotions going. And you can get product sent right to your house. It's easy. It'll be there within 48 hours. I'm a K-Cup guy, and so I load up on uh, Aspen Gold typically. But I get other flavors as well, and I'm never disappointed. It's uh, consistently good. They're a wonderful member of our community for several generations now. As I said, since 1965. That's Boyer's Coffee. Find them at boyerscoffee.com. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, Rockies reliever and Colorado native Lucas Gilbreth on how he stays ready. Try and keep my routine the same. Rule number one is just be prepared for anything. I'm always trying to be ready. No matter the situation, to be hot as quick as I can. And that way, you know, if Senza gets in trouble, I can come pick him up or whatever. And a peek behind the curtain into the Rockies' bullpen. We call it a soft focus. You keep a soft focus the whole game. You kind of know what's going on. But once that fifth, sixth, seventh inning hits, that's when guys really start to watch at bats, really start to pay attention try and be in tune with what's happening in the game because that's that's time when things are going to get a little crazy down subscribe to the drew goodman podcast wherever you find podcasts and tell a friend this is the drew goodman podcast diaz is over two officially he's walked twice time run at third winning run at second and a ground ball toward the whole through here comes iglesias to throw on its way How about that? The Rockies win 6-5, just their second walk-off win of the year as they split that mini two-game set with Tony LaRusso's Chicago White Sox. It was, I'll be honest, not the prettiest of games, and the White Sox, I'm sure, in their clubhouse were saying, we just flat-handed that game to the Rockies. It was uh, strange on so many accounts. In fact, the Rockies got off to a great start. Three runs in the first against Lucas Giolito, who's been struggling. You thought they were going to put up a crooked number. And then Giolito, four shutout after that. And the Rockies kept squandering opportunities, kept hitting into double plays, as they did on Tuesday night. But uh, in the ninth inning, Kendall Graveman 
Notleem Hendricks comes out of the bullpen. Hendricks been having some issues at, at altitude. Graveman, who was so good with Seattle last year and then moved on to uh, Houston, he walks the first three guys. And then Diaz on the first pitch with the seeing eye base hit through the right side. And the Rockies have, as I said, just their second walk-off win of the year. Now we're in the latter part of July. That's a bit surprising, even for a team that's nine games below 500. It's also surprising because the Rockies have a history at 20th and Blake of producing walk-off wins. Last year, I think they set the club record with like a dozen walk-off wins. The other thing the Rockies don't have, I made mention of this on the AT&T broadcast today, the Rockies do not have a grand slam. They're one of three teams to have not hit a bases-loaded home run yet this year. And again, a little bit surprising because a year ago, they set their club record with 11 grand slams. So go figure. I was particularly happy with not only the outcome naturally, but with the guy who got the the Gatorade bath after twice from Charlie Blackman, and that was Elias Diaz. This is one of my favorite guys. He's always got a smile on his face. He is always upbeat. He had a breakout season last year offensively after uh, April and May did not go well for him. And uh, then he produced 18 home runs in all, 17 coming after June 1st. You know the story if you follow the Rockies. And, And the Rockies rewarded him with a a three-year, $14-plus-million-dollar deal. And it was well-deserved and well-earned. And this is a guy that has the trust of the entire pitching staff. He brings great energy every day. As I said, always a smile on his face. And he's been grinding this year. I mean, he didn't get off to as slow a start as he did last year, but it wasn't great in, in April and May. But slowly he's come on, and it's kind of a similar time frame to last year. Maybe uh, rather than June 1st, it was maybe June 8th, June 10th. Uh, but he's super hot right now. And the numbers keep moving up in, in the right direction. And again, you, you want to see that because he's an everyday guy as much as a, a catcher can be an everyday pl- uh, player. Brian Servan obviously uh, gets his turns as well, just like Dom Nunez did uh, a year ago. But he's a guy you root for. He's a guy that uh, I think fans, uh, as they come to know him more, will really gravitate to him because he's a, he's a hard worker and uh, just a, a good guy that cares a great deal. So on a personal level, I was happy for Elias that uh, he could come through and produce that 6-5 to five win. And as we tape this on a Wednesday evening, the Dodgers come to town for four And uh, we'll see what happens there. The Rockies have played well inside the NL West. They really have. They played solid against the Dodgers. I know they got swept out in L.A. uh, a couple of weeks ago, but they were in uh, each of those uh, ball games. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, It's always fun, always interesting when the Dodgers are around. One other note about the game today. Uh, Uri Garcia got picked off of third, which helped the Rockies immensely because the guy at the plate, I can't remember who it was. Um, My brain's fried at this point, but it was a three, one pitch ball four, and it's to the open side, meaning there's no right-handed batter. Garcia's at third. This was going to load the bases and he got picked off on a great throw by Diaz to McMahon from the opponent standpoint, the White Sox standpoint, that can't happen. You're about to have a guy hit with the bases loaded. 
That absolutely cannot happen. And it wasn't close. I mean, he was out by a bunch. And it brings me to the point I'm trying to make. Glad it did happen. Uh, But the bigger point is I've seen more base running blunders and poor base running decisions this year than I can remember. And it and we've seen the Rockies do it too. I mean, Randall Gritchick will raise his hand and say he messed one up the other day when, you know, he's at third. There's, you know, a safety squeeze on. And as soon as the bunt is down on the ground, as soon as you see it down, and Garrett Hampson got it down, you gotta come. And and he hesitated and, and did not go, and the Rockies did not score. Uh, there have been a, a number of situations where you you have your you know you're shaking your head, and uh, it brings me to the the main point that you hear from coaches and managers in the game that they're still teaching at the big league level, and the players are better than ever. I'm not going to do the old oh back in the day they didn't do this. Their mistakes were made. Well, back in the day they weren't as good across the board in terms of talent. And overall ability as the as the players we're watching today, they're the best there's ever been. Best arms on the mound, greatest power, uh, better athletes across the board. It's not to say there weren't great athletes before, weren't power pitchers before. Not what I'm saying, but because there's been such a focus in amateur baseball on tools: run fast, throw hard, launch angle, hit the ball over the wall, exit velocity. Some of the more nuanced items of the game, including how to play the game, have been lost or are not as finely tuned, shall we say, as you'd like when some of these guys arrive at the big leagues. And even guys who are really bright can make mistakes. Even guys that are well-seasoned can make mistakes. After all, it is day after day after day. It's a game of imperfect. So sometimes these base running blunders happen to smart base runners. We saw it earlier this year with Charlie Blackman, who's, you know, a solid base runner. And Charlie's is one of the brightest guys in the game. And uh, with no one out at third, he broke to the plate on comebacker, which, you know, with one out, you're going on contact typically, but not with no one out. And, you know, again, Charlie's smart guy, smart as they come, but he made a mistake. But there have been a number this year that have uh, that have you shaking your head, and I'm sure you're doing the same thing at home. All right, so a good win for the Rockies. We talked about the Dodgers uh, coming in. Where are the Rockies? We we started this second half, and on television and on this podcast, we talked about the fact that the Rockies finished strong in the first half. Um, they have to make a run back at 500 and do it quickly to be relevant. That's where relevancy begins, 500 in baseball. And with the additional wild card team, you have a shot if you can reach 500 in a reasonable amount of time in the second half. Well, the Rockies, after their win today, are still nine games beneath 500. And there are several teams in front of them separating them from the final wild card spot. It's been in and around six games or so. And I'm also a big believer. Let me get this out front. I'm a huge believer in the old Bill Parcells line. When you've played a high volume of games, you can do the woulda, coulda, shoulda all you want, but you are what the record says you are. Every team has tragic losses. Every team probably, if they look in the mirror, will say, boy, we stole that one 
at some point in time. So it kind of works both ways. Right now, the Rockies are nine games beneath 500. There's certainly been enough, as they're right around 100 games, to suggest that they're not a playoff team. They're, they have not been good enough. And with the trade deadline looming and the goal to be a playoff team, if not this year, in the not-too-distant future, what do you do? We've talked about this or around this for a few weeks and kind of alluded to the fact that we'll get into it when we get closer to the deadline. deadline. Well, it's uh, almost upon us. And for me, you know, the Rockies certainly can't be buyers being nine games under 500. And they typically don't do a lot of major deals. In the years where it made sense to add a a pan arm, we've seen them do that. We saw them do that in 17. We saw them do that in 18, two playoff years. So who is most likely, if the Rockies are sellers, to move? I would start with probably Jose Iglesias for a couple of reasons. Jose's played well. He's played really well. And he has swung the bat exceptionally well, particularly out on the road. He's gotten big hits. He had another uh, couple of big hits uh, in the ball game today, double a score run early, uh, a single in the latter part of the game to bring the Rockies back within a run. The Rockies, the second reason that he could be a trade candidate, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year, but Ezekiel Tovar is one of the Rockies' top prospects. And he's pretty close to ready because he's torn up double A. The only thing that's impeding his progress right now is he's been dealing with a groin injury and has not played the last couple of weeks. But I believe at some point in time, the Rockies would like to see Ezekiel Tovar in the big leagues this year. He's 20 years old. He's going to add energy. He's going to add talent. Um, and, And quite honestly, as good as Jose Iglesias has been, he's keeping the position warm eventually for Tovar. So could you get something back, a, a prospect at some level for Iglesias? Hopefully. You're not going to get a windfall uh, for Jose Iglesias. I, even, I was even thinking of the White Sox because they have a hole at second base. And, you know, he could go over there potentially, play second base, give them more offense than they're getting at second base. Um, so that's a possibility and, and maybe a strong possibility. Other guys that the Rockies are going to receive calls on. Clearly, Daniel Bard, who unfortunately was not an all-star, though he's had an all-star first half. He is a legit closer. He's a dominant late-inning arm. Even for a team in contention that feels like they're all set in the ninth inning, there aren't many guys better than Daniel Bard if he's pitching in the seventh or the eighth inning, not to mention, naturally, the ninth inning. But if you're the Rockies, you brought him in and gave him an opportunity when he had been out of the game for seven years. He has blossomed with the club. He has become a Rocky. He enjoys being a Rocky. And you say, well, he's your ninth inning guy and you're all set. The problem is, do you need a closer right now when you're not going to the postseason? Could you try to pull off a Yankees? If you think that you can contend somehow next year, as, as soon as next year, do you pull off what the Yankees did with the Robles Chapman and, and send them to Chicago? They got back Labor Torres. And then the next year in the offseason, they were able to re-sign him. It's a risk, but Bard would bring back something of value from a prospect standpoint. 
The other guy, maybe not as much that could bring you some value on the other side coming back, is the veteran Alex Colomay, who has saved close to 160 games in his career, has thrown the ball very well for the Rockies, and it also jumps out at other teams when pitchers who spend half their time at altitude are putting up really good numbers. So the Rockies will receive phone calls naturally on Bard, but I imagine they will also receive phone calls on soon-to-be free agent Alex Colomay. I don't think the Rockies will move Bard. It's just not how they've typically operated. And there is, you know, and I know it's a business you can't get emotionally attached to to players, but th- there's a high appreciation for what Daniel has done. And I think the Rockies are more likely to try to extend him. We'll see. Colomay, though, I could very definitely seeing the Rockies, potentially, if, if, if the move is uh, there to be made, um, seeing if they can get something back for Colomay. The other couple of names that jump to mind that I think the Rockies will receive phone calls on, and you always have to take phone calls, C.J. Crone, because he's had an all-star year, and he actually did make the all-star team deservedly so. A middle-of-the-order bat, legitimately, who's going to hit 30-plus home runs this year. He hit 28 last year. Very controllable guy, a low-payroll guy. When you talk about he's in the first year of a two-year 14, I think, $14.5 million deal, something along those lines. The Rockies like him a lot, a lot to like. And again, he's hitting you know, third or fourth every day for them, never comes out of the lineup. He's been solid at first. The other guy, before I circle back on this as, a, as an overall evaluation of, of what may or may not happen, the other guy that they're going to get phone calls on because he's controllable and he has a great arm, he has the most talent of anybody in the Rockies rotation, is Herman Marquez. I will say this, as difficult as it is for the Rockies, more difficult than the other 29 teams to acquire pitching, particularly starting pitching. I just I just don't know how you give up a high-quality starter. And I think the Rockies will feel the same way. I think they feel like the strength of this team, we've heard them say this going in from Buddy Black to Billy Schmidt, was their rotation with Herman, with Kyle Freeland, with Senzatella, with Gomber in his second year. Uh, Chad Cool, as we know, for the most part, has come in and, and done um, you know a good job. Ryan Feltner's had moments. You can never have enough pitching depth. Um, the Rockies overall, though, um, have not pitched as well as they need to by far. And I'll, and I'll explain that statistically in a moment. But I want to go back to the overall thought about the trade deadline and what the Rockies will do with the last two players. I just don't think the Rockies move C.J. Crone. Again, historically, it's not what they do. And I think they believe that they can contend sooner rather than later. And and Crone is under contract next year. Now, it's a whole different set of circumstances if the Rockies are in the same place next July. And maybe they think the process is farther along than other people. And that's quite possible. Because, again, nine games under 500 in a difficult division right now, as you embark on August in a couple of days, that's that's not a contending team. So you'd, you'd have to turn things around in a big way. 
But I don't see, again, Herman, no way. I don't see it with Crone. Uh, I think the most likely guys potentially would be Iglesias and Colome. Um, even with Bard, I, I think they'd like to keep Bard, who seems ageless, and he wait, rolls out of bed throwing 98-99, even though he's in his latter uh, part of his 30s. Just, again, given their history, I, I don't see that. But we'll see um, overall what happens, particularly with uh, with Iglesias and Colome specifically. Back to pitching for a moment and why the Rockies are nine games under 500 when they felt like they could be a surprise team in 2022. And I understand there's still a lot of baseball left. Their starting pitching ERA is slightly above five. And that's even with the Rockies getting three good starts the last uh, three days. Freeland was wonderful in his last start in Milwaukee. Herman uh, was outstanding. Uh, in game one against the White Sox. And Sensatella threw a very good ball game against the White Sox uh, earlier today. But their ERA from their starters is above five. The last time they went to the postseason was 2018, as you know, and they tied the Dodgers with 92 wins through 162 and had a chance to capture their first ever division title. They didn't win game 163 at Dodger Stadium. What was their ERA, you may wonder, that year? Their starting pitching ERA was 4.17, in the neighborhood of a run less than it currently is. That year, their starting pitching ERA was kind of middle of the pack. It was 18th. But again, the number, 4.17 ERA, was almost a full run lower than it is right now. The Rockies have underachieved with their rotation this year. And I went back to 2009. I know from a historical perspective, the best Rockies team in terms of results was 2007 because they got to the World Series. Talent-wise, I think the best team was 2009. And it's not just my evaluation. In talking to guys who played in that era with the Rockies, to a man, they'll tell you from a talent standpoint, the 09 team, which won 92 games also, was the better team. 07 got super hot, as we know, and made a marvelous run uh, to the World Series. But that 09 team was really well-balanced and really good. So I looked up, how was their rotation back in 09? Remember, they barely, you know, they rolled the same five guys, it seemed like, day after day after day, and, and, um, and everyone stayed healthy. That 09 team had a starting pitching ERA of 410. It's the best in franchise history. So again, about a full run better than what has transpired so far in 2022. And get this, that 2009 starting pitching earned run average was seventh best in all of baseball. Yes, playing half your games at altitude. So (laughs) the simple solution to getting the Rockies back where we all want to see them It's always about pitching, and in particular, it's about starting pitching. And the Rockies like their nucleus, even though they've underachieved this year, and that's what gives them hope that there can be a quicker turnaround. But right now, the the two most prominent playoff teams, or two of the most prominent playoff teams, their starting pitching earned run average almost a full run less than what we've seen so far this year. All right, time to move on. You know what's uh, what element of the team has has been you know very good, particularly of late. That's the bullpen, and one of the major reasons 
is Colorado's own Lucas Gilbreth, who's in his second season. And after a slow start, um, probably because of COVID, he and Robert Stevenson came down with COVID and they started the year on the COVID list and they were slow naturally to regain strength. But once Gilbreth has regained you know, all that strength and the arm speed. He's back in the mid-90s. I know he gave up uh, a couple of hits today and ultimately a run. It's just the third time he's given up a run in his last, I believe, 24 outings. He has emerged not only as a, as a guy who can get lefties out, he gets righties out, and Buddy, rightfully so, trusts him with protecting leads. He's been a setup guy. We've seen him quite frequently with, cr- frequently with a lead in the seventh inning. So let's get right to it. I know you're going to enjoy him quite a bit. From Legacy High School, our Ideal Home Owns interview of the week is left-hander Lucas Gilbert. All right, I'm going to take you back. Legacy High School. Even before then, was there a point in time, every kid wants to be a big leader, right? Yeah. But was there a point in time growing up where you go, shoot, I may have a shot? Honestly, uh, hockey was kind of my main gig up until middle school and I think it wasn't really till about eighth grade going into my freshman year of high school that I started to realize that I was pretty good at baseball and I had some God-given abilities. And uh, it was actually my high school coach that came one day and told my parents and told myself, he's like, he needs to play baseball. He's going to pitch in the big leagues someday. And and that was Ty Giordano. And he told me that and I kind of laughed it off and whatever. And I think my parents laughed it off a little bit too. And and every time I see him now, he's still the head coach at Legacy. He says, I told you, I told you. So I think it was kind of that point for me when I realized that I had a real chance. I know you were fired up because of your hockey background in particular, but also because you're, you know, a local guy with what the Avalanche did. How good a hockey player were you? And I, I, I know you're a humble guy, but how good a hockey player were you? I wish I was better, to be honest with you, but uh, I think I was a pretty solid hockey player. I, I traveled quite a bit. I played in tournaments in Canada and North Dakota, Minnesota, all that fun stuff. So I played quite a bit. For me, it was more I kind of got burnt out, and the hockey schedule is brutal as a young kid. That's one of the things. There, there's only so much ice time in the day, and you have school. So I got pretty burnt out of 4 a.m. practices and then after-school lifting and then after-school practice again. So that was, that was more of it for me. But I got to play with some really good players growing up few guys in the NHL so I would say I was I was an average hockey player and I I wish I could have been better I just probably didn't have the natural skill set that I would say I have for baseball what position did you play were you a forward I played defense I played defense yeah which what side do you shoot from uh left side okay that's you know you need left-handed shot for uh on now were you were you a defensive guy first, or were you a puck mover? Were you a two-way defenseman? I was more of a defensive guy, I'd say. I would say, in an analogy to the Avs, if you will, I was more of like an Eric Johnson. I was on the penalty kill defensive shift. I wasn't uh, necessarily, I didn't shoot a ton, but I was more of a defensive, and I liked to hit towards the end of my career. So those were my two things. Yeah. Who'd you, who made it to the NHL, by the way, that you played with? Jacob and Josiah Slavin. Jacob uh, is, was an all-star with the Carolina, or yeah, Carolina Hurricanes, and then Josiah is with the Chicago Blackhawks. So I got to play with both of them. I was wondering if you played with my, when I used to do the, when you, because we've talked about this, when you were young, I did the Nuggets yeah. also, and Popeye Jones played for the Nuggets for a while. Well, Seth, 
they lived around the corner from me, and, and both kids, Caleb, are in the NHL. Did you ever, I know they went to Dallas, did you ever overlap with them? I don't remember overlapping. It was hard to say. I'm sure we could have played against each other in a tournament or two. I know I played against Joe Sackick's kid a lot growing up, so there's always those guys around the area that, you know, you ran into here and there, and it was always awesome, and it, it was cool to see. At what point in time did they say, we're going to take the bat away from you, and you are a left-handed pitcher? That's it. Yes, so freshman year of high school, um, I was told that I made varsity, and I was pretty excited, and I was kind of like, oh, what position? And they laughed at me, and they said, well, you're going to pitch. And I said, well, what about outfield? I played outfield and first base at the time. And uh, he was kind of like, look, you're ready to play at the varsity level as a pitcher, but you're not quite there um, as a hitter. And so it was tough to swallow, but, I mean, if you had the choice, would you rather hit, play both ways on JV or play on varsity as a freshman so I was like yeah that's fine so I didn't really start hitting again until junior year and then I had some kind of injury issues when I was hitting so then I didn't hit it until senior year really what kind of velocity did you have early on um I would I would say early into high school I was probably a low to mid 80s guy kind of sporadic funky fastball kind of you know deceptive still kind of weird like I am now but Um, Towards the end of high school, I started creeping up towards the the upper 80s, low 90s, and I think senior year I was probably 88 to 92 or somewhere in there. I always ask this question of guys that are still relatively early in the big big league career, and and you've established yourself, but there's always a point in time, whether you're a pitcher or a position player, where you say to yourself, privately probably, I know I belong, I know I'm in the right league, and kind of take off from there was there a point in time yes I think I mean to be honest with you I have points in time every couple weeks where I think that to myself because not that not that I haven't thought that I've established myself but there's always a sliver of doubt here and there and you know the other night coming in first and second no outs and getting out of it that's one of those where you're like yes this is what I do you know if you can be excited I wasn't even excited it was kind of like yes that's my job I did my job and so there's been a few times I mean last year in LA when I got the save against the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium I was kind of like okay like I belong here and then this year obviously started off really rough and I came back and had a good outing against the Royals I think I struck out the side or whatever and I kind of had that talk with myself again of like okay I can do this I belong here I'm good enough to be here and that's one of the hardest things mentally to tell yourself sometimes even when you're struggling but I try and tell it to Bird just like Kinley and Bard and some of those guys have told it to me you belong here your stuff's good enough to be here you're fine and that's and that's kind of one of those things that it's more mental than it is physical obviously because everybody's gifted at this level but just being able to tell yourself I have what it takes is huge yeah, I'm gonna ask you the same question I mean it's nice I, I know the Giordano family a little bit and, and it's nice when a coach gives you that kind of confidence but you also know how how long a road it is from being told hey you got a nice arm in high school versus getting all the way through major college baseball pro ball to get to this level it's the best league in the world so really at what point in time do you feel like i may have the ability truly to to get to the top level yeah to be honest with you like you said it's such a long journey there were times early on in the minor leagues and rookie ball low a even high a where the big leagues doesn't even seem real it's so far away you're kind of sitting there like okay, I have to go to Hartford, and then I got to do well in Hartford, and then I have to go to Albuquerque, and then I have to wait till something happens and maybe get called up. But uh, in 2020, that COVID year, when I really started working on stuff and talking with Steve Merriman and working with Frank a little bit, 
I started to figure out like, wow, okay, like the stuff was coming along, the command was coming along. So then I went to the that instructional league, which was quasi fall league because of COVID that year. We didn't really have a fall league. And I got to throw to some other guys that were in my situation that were fall league guys that couldn't play fall league. And I started striking out a lot of guys. And um, that was kind of the point when I was like, I think – I think I have what it takes, and I think I'm ready to pitch at that level. And then uh, going into that next spring training, I got to throw to some big-name guys, and I struck out a couple guys or got weak contact, and I was like, holy cow, Like I think I can do this. So for me, it was pretty late um, when I realized it, but it is just such a grind at the lower levels. Like I said, it doesn't even seem possible necessarily. You know it's there, but it seems so far away. But for me, 2020 was kind of the year. Your confidence level, because, you know, primarily you're a two-pitch guy. I mean, I know you throw the splitter a little mm-hmm. bit, but, you know, it's, it's good heater, slider. Confidence level with each pitch, where is it right now as, as you are, you know, second half of 2022, still early in your career? Yeah, I mean, I think my confidence in my fastball is great right now. It's just uh, I probably need to throw some more sliders, and those are the conversations we've had. And I mean, even it's even nice to get to watch guys throw. I got to watch Hader pitch last night, obviously, and I would argue he's got the best fastball in baseball. And I was like, wow, he throws more sliders than I do. I need to, I need to start throwing more. But I, I would say I have good confidence in both of those pitches right now. It's just for me, you're always learning something. And I'm still learning some of the ins and outs of sequencing and pitch usage. So that's just one of those things. I think the confidence is there. It's just going to be going out and doing it. The transition that you made from being a starter to a short guy to a pen guy to to a late pen guy take us through that yeah that was one of the most difficult things and I tried to be as diligent with everything every part of the process as I could and I think Merriman helped me with that Frank Gonzalez helped me with that um, when I went out in 2020 because I said you know they have a schedule and instructs and it's a lot more you know regulated than a season and I told Merriman I was like I don't want to know when I'm pitching I don't want to know what inning I want to work on every little aspect of it. And then even in spring training, I hate when they tell us, you know, you got this day. It drives me nuts. But um, that's just one of those things. To me, it's all the little stuff that makes you uncomfortable in the bullpen. Going from a starter and knowing I throw on this day, I'm going to throw 100 pitches, good or bad, and then I've got four days as opposed to, you know, I might throw three days in a row. I might go two innings and then one inning the next day and especially going into more of a back end role and kind of knowing okay this is kind of when I'm gonna pitch is getting even funkier but that's just one of those things you try and keep everything consistent try and keep my routine the same and at the end of the day I think our rule number one is just be prepared for anything so just trying to go out there and I'm always trying to be ready no matter the situation to be hot as quick as I can and That way, you know, if Senza gets in trouble, I can come pick him up or whatever. More with Rockies left-hander Lucas Gilbreth in a moment. But first, this from my friends at Ideal Home Loans. Brent Ivinson's team is terrific, and uh, we know that the real estate market has gone crazy over the last year, and now interest rates have gone up, and you're wondering, can I still purchase a home? Can I still get a good rate? Who's going to put me in a, in a good product? Who is going to answer 
a myriad of questions that I may have. Well, I have just such the company for you. It is Ideal Home Loans. Again, Brent Ivinson's team. More than 20 years in our market, also down in Arizona. You can reach them at 303-867-7000. They're going to be a wonderful guide for you through these uh, crazy real estate times. They're going to help you uh, get the money you need for either the project uh, in your current home or the purchase of a new home or a second home, perhaps. Again, it's 303-867-7000, Ideal Home Loans, 303-867-7000, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Now back to more with Colorado native Lucas Gilbreth. The collective bullpen, does the mood change all of a sudden, fifth, sixth inning, where, you know, if the starter's doing, you know, having the day that he hopes to have, so to speak, you know, you guys, bullpens are, you guys are an interesting group to begin with. But is there kind of a process as the game unfolds to where the mood changes, the conversations lessen, that sort of thing? Yes, absolutely. I think some of those games, like even yesterday, for example, we didn't pull it out, obviously, but we started to get to that point when Gomber picked us up and got us into that sixth, seventh inning area where it was like, okay, people stop talking. You kind of know that, you know, whether it's going to be me, um, column A, Bard, whatever it's going to be, guys start getting quiet, guys start stretching. And, you know, at that point, everybody always talks about, you know, you're trying to get it to the seventh inning. And, and the Brewers are the best example of that, right? You've got Boxberger, William, Williams, Hader. So it's like you always talk – you get the starter through six with the lead. That's when, you know, the big boys, for sake of lack of a better word, are going to come in and try and do their job. And that's when I think, like you said, it gets a little quieter. People lock it in a little bit more and you kind of shift that focus. And it's not even necessarily, you know, it's going to be these three guys. We have we have uh, Bard obviously pretty solidified and Colme, but there's days where, you know, Colme is down or Bard's down and you know, I think at that point in the bullpen, that's one of the most interesting things in the big leagues is, guys, we call it a soft focus. You keep a soft focus the whole game, you kind of know what's going on, but once that fifth, sixth, seventh inning hits, that's when guys really start to watch at bats, really start to pay attention, try and be in tune with what's happening in the game because that's that's time when things are going to get a little crazy down there. What's the best singular piece of advice you've gotten from one of the veteran guys down there? Oh, man, there's, there's so many options, but uh, I think one of the best things I've ever heard, and it was kind of a funny one, was from Chassin, and I was throwing to Pujols, I believe, and I tried to throw him the nastiest fastball I've ever thrown. He said, you know how many pitches he's seen? I said, I don't know, probably millions. He's like, yeah. He's like, did you really think you were going to throw the best pitch he's ever seen? I said, no. He said, I don't care who it is. If you execute pitches, you're going to be fine. He's like, stop going out there and trying to throw the best pitch they've ever seen and I was kind of like huh it made sense to me because that's the hardest thing when you see a superstar if you will a Juan Soto or a Pujols or even a Yadier Molina whoever you want to say you want to gear up you want to do something special you want to punch him out you want to do whatever but at the end of the day you're not going to do something they've never seen before so you're better off going out there executing pitches and just trying to get them out the old-fashioned way if you will. Well, it's a great example, but did you have a holy shit moment your, your rookie year where you're going, oh my goodness, that's so-and-so? Yes. For me, the hardest one was um, in Cincinnati. My worst outing um, up to this point, and I'm sure I'll probably have a worse one someday, but um, I came in in Cincinnati, bases juiced, 
Joey Votto up to bat. And he's not necessarily the biggest name I've thrown to, but I was like, oh, crap. And <laughs> I was like, I got the bases loaded. I got Joey Votto up. So that one was rough. Juan Soto is always a tough one. I mean, I'll give that guy his credit where it's due. I mean, last year in Washington coming in in the eighth in a tie game with runner on second and Soto at the plate, I was like, uh-oh. So that's just one of those, like, there's still some, you know, every once in a while that you run into a guy and you're like, wow, that's, you know, Juan Soto or – the whole Dodgers lineup kind of makes you numb to it because they have nine all-stars, but just running into some of those guys and <laughs> trying to think like Shasin and you know what? They're still hitters. It's still really hard to hit. And, um, you try and keep that shell shock out of it and you know, it's easier said than done, but yeah, there's been a few times where you hear the name. You're like, Hmm, that'll be fun. That's actually tremendous advice because you know, you can't make a Hall of Fame pitch every time, yes. and you realize that even the best in the world, they're going to make an out seven out of ten times. They may hit a line drive at somebody, but yes. they're going to make an out. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that's funny is, like, I've thrown pitches to, like, a Freddie Freeman, for example. I've thrown a dotted fastball low and away that he smoked in the left, and I've hung a slider that he popped up to second base. It's That's one of the things I tell myself on the mound sometimes that I remind myself is, like, hitting's hard. Like, if you're stressed out, if I'm worried, if I'm getting negative thoughts about making a pitch, I just try and remind myself, hitting is really hard. Like you said, best hitters in the world get a hit three out of ten times. So those other seven times, who knows? But you just got to keep confidence. All right, before we go Colorado for a second, growing up in Colorado, who's the biggest character in the pen? Because, again, the history of bullpens, you guys are a little off. Yeah. And especially, you're, you're pretty normal for a left-handed yeah. guy. i got to tell you that. Yeah. But but you guys are normally just a little bit, you know, yeah, off-center. Off. Yeah. yeah, I would say uh, Estevez. That dude, he's the biggest, funniest teddy bear you'll ever meet in your life. And, I mean, you've obviously been next to him. He's one of the largest humans I've ever been around. But he's always smiling, always laughing, always joking. No matter the situation, no matter what's going on. So he's he's pretty entertaining. He's one. He's probably the biggest clown, if you will, in the bullpen. And then Jake Bird is making a, a sneaky run for it. Obviously, he hasn't been here very long. But the more conversations I have with him, he's he's kind of a funky bullpen guy. The more I talk to him, can, can he be an honorary left-hander even though he throws righty? Yeah, I mean we've been looking. I've been trying to give honorary lefty certificates. I gave uh, Robert Stevenson was kind of an honorary lefty last year. So we're, we're trying to find guys that kind of fit the mold, but Jake Bird definitely fits the mold. All right, man, growing up, who was your guy with the Rockies? Oh, there was a few. Um, the biggest one was Todd Helton, obviously. I, I was a first baseman. I was a lefty. I, I bought a Mizuno glove as a kid. I loved watching Todd. And um, on top of that, I went to a lot of Rockies games. So guys like Jeff, Franta, Jeff Francis, Brian Fuentes, um, all the lefties, I, I just love lefties. Brad Hop, every one of those guys, and then obviously more recently Chuck. And being able to play with Chuck's obviously incredible. But I always, I always kind of found the lefties that I liked, and those were my guys. That's got to be wild for you because you watched Chuck, you know, more or less as a kid, yes. and now you are teammates. So is he the guy that you saw on TV? Oh yeah, absolutely. He's the guy. It's always kind of funny. Him and Shasin even because I obviously got to watch Shasin a little bit, but. There's days where I'll be, like, sitting there talking to Chuck, and then I'm kind of like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. You know, we'll talk about hunting or baseball or whatever, and then I'm sitting back, and I'm like, I used to just watch this guy on TV or watch him from the stands or whatever. So that's that's been the the cool piece. But um, just being able to see what he does on a day-to-day basis, you know, in person, close up, it, it, it makes sense why he's the player that he is. And it was always funny to see 
him from the stands and saying, think he's such a good player, he's so naturally gifted, and then you see all the work he puts in, and you're like, yeah, he is naturally gifted, but he's also, you know, one of the hardest working players you'll ever see. He is that. Okay, the Colorado thing. We know how much pride Kyle Freeland, he wears it on his body, takes in, in being from the Centennial State. I know in conversations with you and, and, and right now how important that is to you. How, how would you articulate it when somebody says, what what does being from Colorado, especially as a big leaguer, mean? Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it's there's a sense of pride, but there's also a sense of responsibility in a sense where it's, you know, as much as people want to complain about the Rockies or say whatever about the Rockies, we have a lot of guys here, especially I would assume Kyle and I, that we want to win games. I mean, we've been Rockies fans our whole life. We we see what this team's capable of, and we see, you know, some of the good and the bad. And that's where, for me, it's like being from Colorado, I want this team to continue to grow, to try and make a run someday and maybe get back to where we were in 07 right that's the biggest thing and for me growing up watching that and then being up here and playing it's just like I want to experience that I want to see you know I want that opportunity and I think everybody here is on the same page it's just kind of getting there as a team you pay attention to the other guys not necessarily Rockies that have made it in the big leagues because cold weather state better known for skiing better known for all things not related to baseball and yet there's a lot of guys that have made it now out of Colorado yeah it's funny I I know of quite a few of them and then there's even some that every once in a while I'm like oh I didn't even know that but obviously you've got like Melanson you've got Roger the Rogers brothers um that Stephen Wilson that came up with the uh, Padres every team we run into I find one guy or another and I like it, too, just because it's a resource, and I like to talk to guys, and I want to, you know, see if I can spend some time with Melanson. I want to see if I can spend some time with Rogers. just little stuff like that. Um, because, like you said, it's a cold-weather state, right? But I think there is a bit of an advantage to guys from Colorado and dealing with adversity and kind of putting up with crap that maybe people in other states haven't had to, and I think you see that with a lot of pitchers especially that – you know, maybe you haven't had the most ideal circumstances, but I've made really good big league careers out of it. Lucas, I appreciate it, man. Continued success and uh, way to represent. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Good man. And uh, he's thrilled for his success. And you can see each time out how his confidence has grown. I told this story on television recently, you know, he and he mentioned it uh, during the interview that you know, he he watches and he learns from guys like Josh Hader. And then he went out and threw some more sliders in his first outing after watching Hader and was really effective with it. But um, he's a great story. He's one of 17 Coloradans, native Coloradans, born in Colorado. So there may be some others that went to high school in Colorado and are in the big leagues. But 17 this year that have appeared in a big league game uh, across Major League Baseball. It's a close-knit fraternity, as you heard him talk about. And overall, according to Baseball Reference, there have been 99 players all-time that have hailed from the Centennial State. And I love it. I love bringing it up. I love when guys from our home state uh, get to the big leagues and have success because even though we're a cold-weather state, we're not the most populous state we are starting to turn out really high-level baseball players um, at, at the highest level we've ever seen. And uh, it, it correlates to back in the early 90s, 1993 specifically, when the Rockies came aboard 
and more kids said, hey, I want to play baseball, just like the same thing has happened with the avalanche and more sheets of ice and more kids playing uh, hockey in our state. We've seen more uh, play baseball and reach a high level. So congrats to Lucas Gilbreth. Congrats to you know Kyle Freeland, another uh, Denver native. All of it's awesome. And, um, and, and again, as you heard, it's, it's a close-knit fraternity, the Colorado Big Leaguers. That'll do it for this edition of the Drew Goodman Podcast. A reminder to catch the DNVR guys, and specifically my guy Patrick Lyons on the Rockies DNVR Podcast, five days a week, great written material uh, as well. And they'll be doing a lot of stuff now with the trade deadline days away. So make sure you check out uh, all of their fine work. We'll talk to you next week. Stay safe, stay well. Thanks for uh, visiting.